Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing journalist with CalMatters. I'm Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today on the podcast, Liam, last year we spent a lot of time talking about um, a certain set of bills that ended up passing the legislature. It was a package of bills. Almost a package of bills. Uh There's some dispute over whether to call it a package or not. I'm comfortable calling it a package. Me too. We are going to be following up on how it's actually working. Yay. We're all, we're a little older and grayer. Uh, and now I'm the ha- significantly grayer. Yeah, now the housing package is, you know, over a year old. Um, so it's, it's uh, you know, I guess still in diapers, perhaps. Perhaps walking, um, I, I was, shattering a bit. I was yeah. going to say, yeah. um, because most of these laws went into effect January 1st, yeah. nine months. Yeah, but that signing, the signing ceremony, you know, that was a, you know, that's a year ago. Yeah, yeah. I think the baby is more appropriate. The baby has been born. We're checking yeah. up on the health of the baby. Birthed. Yes. 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 Chattering a bit, still in diapers, perhaps, you know, moving around slowly. And we have uh, the person in charge of making sure that this housing package works as our guest today. Ben Metcalf, uh, head of the state housing department and and our first repeat guest on the Gimme Gimme Shelter California Housing Crisis podcast. So we know that we've made it now that we have a long enough history to have someone back for a second time. And clearly Ben has made it too. Probably the crowning achievement of his career. I would argue so. Yes. Yes. Congratulations, Ben. Yes. And we have a second guest, uh, Mayor of Cupertino, Darcy Paul. Cupertino had a big debate culminating uh, this week in the approval of a massive new housing and retail project that invoked one of the major pieces of legislation uh, that passed last year. So we're going to talk to uh, Mayor Paul about that and how that process worked. And special thanks for Mayor Paul because he's been very busy over the past couple days um, with city council, contentious city council meetings. Indeed. Uh, uh, over this project, um, as well as a flood of media requests. So we appreciate it. We will also be debuting a new segment to commemorate the one-year anniversary of the podcast. And that new segment is very uncreatively titled... Housing on the ballot. Housing on the ballot. So every fortnight, we will be checking in on the multiple um, housing-related initiatives um, that are on the ballot this November, as well as kind of broader election stories that have to do with housing. This uh, segment will focus on rent control. Of course it will. Of course. And most of them will. First plugs. Uh, Liam, you got any plugs? Um. No, just uh, you know, make sure to check us out on iTunes. Give us a nice little review and rating there. That would be nice to 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 have that. So we appreciate it. Next week, I'll be moderating a panel uh, put on by the Turner Center on what else? Rent control. That's next Thursday. If uh, at Berkeley, if you're in the East Bay, um, swing on by. Tickets still available, despite my celebrity. First, uh, the most popular segment in all of California housing podcast one we'll never get rid of no yeah it's been one year and it's now it's the uh it's the avocado of the fortnight um our look at the absurd slash whimsical slash uh hopefully comedic um elements of california's housing crisis um this one is pretty meaty this yeah. is a meaty avocado yeah it's like ripe liam let me ask yeah. you this yeah, yeah tell, ask me ask me i'm ready who is the most famous yimby I think there's no question. It's yeah. Ben Carson, <laughs> the Secretary of Federal Housing and Urban Development. Oh, uh, how a hashtag causes headaches yeah. for many. 
Um, why do you say that now? Yeah, so uh, YIMBY for the 0.1% of our listeners who don't know what that is, um, that's an acronym for Yes in My Backyard. It's a movement that uh, was really born in California to sort of support housing as a way predominantly to uh, make housing more affordable, uh, sort of a very supply and demandy um, kind of kind of outlook on life. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this has been something that's that's grown, again, particularly in California. And Ben Carson now, um, recently in the past week, now says he's uh, he's one of them. And Ben Carson, of course, previously a fairly controversial candidate for the Republican nomination for the presidency. Yes. Yes. So some more background to this is is Carson has gone after um, some Obama era rules to uh, sort of force localities to uh, incorporate some uh, uh, anti-segregation plans in their sort of housing process and potentially tying some federal funding to that. Uh, Carson doesn't like that, didn't like that rule. Uh, and so he has taken steps to overturn it. Um, and but as part of that process, there's like, well, what are you going to do, man, about housing? It sure is expensive. Um, what are you going to do about it? And he says, ah, ah, I had the solution. Yimby. <laughs> so specifically, he put out a tweet last week. Um, as soon as I saw the tweet, I was like, oh, wow, this is going to be a thing. Right. And it, uh, it's been it has definitely yeah. been a thing. So it's, what, why don't why don't we. Go ahead, read the yeah. tweet. Yeah, so, uh, uh, okay. Um, oh, I have it if you don't No, I got it. it. You got uh, it? In case you missed it, in acronym form, perfect Twitter style, um, HUD is taking on the NIMBYs. Hashtag NIMBYs. Hashtag NIMBYs. I agree with uh, Noah Smith. Is it Noah Smith? Yes. Yeah, He's a, a writer for Bloomberg. Bloomberg. I use his Twitter handle. I agree with Noah Smith that we should we, we must look at increasing the supply of affordable housing by reducing onerous zoning regulations. Zoning laws are holding back America's cities. Okay, stop right there. Yeah. So if that tweet goes out, uh-huh. fine. Yeah. Right? Then yeah. this this does not make the podcast. Right. This goes further in the uh, you know, Republic general Republican deregulation, all part of the thing. Yes, yes. exactly. Right, right. But then, yes. Then, go ahead. Zoning laws are holding back America's cities. Hashtag Yimby. And with a hashtag, all hell is unleashed. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> with, uh, go ahead. So again, uh, on the one hand, I reference just referenced the sort of Republican idea of deregulation, which I think does go hand in hand with with a lot of the um, what the Yimby movement wants to wants to do and wants to pursue. Um, at the same time, there's a, a separate sect of the Republican Party that is very much in favor of letting localities do whatever they want. Yes. Um, local control and that being a uh, zoning laws are good. Right, sort of take uh, from yes. conservatives. Fundamental and, tension within conservative ideology on yes. uh, housing. And one, and that take is one that uh, Ben Carson has embraced before. Um, an op-ed he did uh, a few years ago prior to him being uh, installed as the HUD director was to say that efforts to sort of uh, deal with um, zoning laws uh, was an incursion uh, into communities' right to choose what they want, um, and he called it social engineering. Carson would prove this by attaching federal grants to the removal of zoning restrictions. Right. That is that is the mechanism by which he would do that. Yes. Um, but. So, but. Yeah. Um, so it was a countdown for me. I, I was wondering, like, okay, how long is it going to take the Yimby folks to distance themselves from this? In California in particular. In California, spe- yes, yes, specifically, yes. yes. And it was about 24 hours? Maybe yeah, less. I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where they, you know, they put out a statement. I mean, uh, immediately yeah. on Twitter there yes, was, yes, oh, yes, God, no, yeah. this is not what we're about. Right. 
But um, yeah, they put out a statement. Twenty California Yimby put out a statement. Uh, 24 hours later. Right. I think maybe slightly less than. Yeah. Um, and what did that statement say? Just generally, you know, that the Secretary serves an administration that consistently undermines and subverts core American and YIMBY values of tolerance, diversity, inclusivity, uh, its efforts to divide instead of unite or anathema to what we stand for, et cetera, et cetera. I think you get the you get the point. Yes. There's uh, also part of that letter that yeah. said tweets are not policy, which right. objectively true, but also if you know how the YIMBYs operate. Tweets uh, are kind of policy. little ironic yeah. there. little yeah. ironic there. So, but let's talk about why this is perhaps problematic uh, for the Yimby movement in for California. Them. Yeah. So, look, um, the president is not popular in California. He's not? No, he's not. A 29% approval rating, I want to say, the last I checked. I don't know. Not good, though. Not No matter what, it's not good. And the sort of the legislature here has made it their mission, starting from the day after he was elected, to be the vanguard of the resistance against President Trump. And here you are um, having uh, a high-level Trump administration official embracing something that— um, would uh, so the folks on the left, some folks on the left here think is a good idea. Other folks on the left do not. Um, and those folks almost certainly will use yes. uh, the approval of the YIMBY platform uh, or the YIMBY, uh, at the very least, the YIMBY moniker um, by Secretary Carson as a cudgel uh, against YIMBY approved policies in the legislature. Yes. Expect some Ben Carson memes when Senator Weiner reintroduces something like SBA 27, which, again, was the bill that uh, tries to do a lot of what Ben Carson says Says that he's a fan of. Exactly. Right. Taking away um, restrictive or zoning restrictions to allow more dense development around single family homes. And let's I mean, I want to be very clear that this is a legitimate and real political problem uh, for the the folks who want to do something like this. I think it's really a good analogy. Um, You know, there was a movement and has been a movement on the left in California to a certain extent to embrace charter schools. Um, and I think a lot of the, the political heft or wind in their sails has gotten, you know, cut out, uh, whatever, however I'm butchering his metaphor, um, because this Donald Trump secretary of education, Betsy DeVos, is huge into charter schools. And that really identifies, I think, um, that pr- project or process with uh, right wing ideology that, again, is not super popular in California. Also, the fact that one, like we mentioned, this is the Trump administration, not so popular among uh, low-income communities of color. Two, weirdly, this is part of Carson's attempt to reverse Obama administration anti-segregation policies. That's not going to be very popular among low-income communities of color. In fact, the state just passed a law on the governor's desk now that would enshrine those Obama or anti-segregation rules into state law. Yes, which I think the the Yimby supported. They did. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. This this can only serve to worsen some of those tensions between relatively politically powerful uh, anti gentrification groups here in the capital and the Yimbies. Yep. I I think we we are at risk of overstating this. Yeah. Like I don't think this is. It's probably we're making out to be I think a little bigger than it actually is. Well, but I, it, but it's still yeah. kind of symbolically important it's a i think it's a real political problem uh, i think that that's true but i don't think yeah. that it's i don't think that it's um something that's that's insurmountable or something that would not you know would be a, a, a death knell or anything like that but i i do think it's it opens up a can of worms that probably people didn't want to have opened up let's move on to our new segment this fortnight housing, housing on, on the, the ballot. ballot Ooh, we got some stereo for that 
It was nice. It was yeah. good harmony. Yeah. I suppose it's newspaper endorsement season. It, it clearly. Yeah. Because we got a lot of them. Yes. Um, I feel like it came a little early this year. It does Is that feel just a little me, bit earlier? Right? Maybe, yeah. But we're only six weeks out. I know. You know I guess. Yeah. I guess it's day. sneaking up on us. Yeah. So um, Proposition Ten. That's the measure on the ballot that would repeal the state and many state prohibitions on uh, rent control. And so all the newspapers uh, came out in recent weeks giving their endorsement uh, for it. Um, well, but for or providing yes. a position on it. Correct. Yes. yes. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. And so, uh, endorsement on it, rather. Um, and so, uh, two big papers, the uh, Los Angeles Times, which you perhaps may have heard of, um, and the Sacramento Bee uh, endorsed Proposition 10. And their arguments was not necessarily that Proposition 10 is good, uh, but rather that uh, we should let cities and counties design their own rent control rules as a potential mechanism to alleviate some part of that portion of the housing crisis. And were you surprised by these endorsements? Um, no, I, I, I think it's. I think hmm. I think I would have. Been, I, I, you know, I'm not surprised that some newspapers come out and said what they did, whether it's the B or the LA Times or the Chronicle or the Merck, which, you know, were against, it. Were against Prop yeah. 10. I'm not surprised that some some came out in favor of it. I think the way, though, that it was shaped was a little bit interesting, right? Because no one came, none of these came out and said, rent control is the best thing in the world, rent control everywhere, rent control forever, da 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 This was, well, we like the idea of giving cities and counties the chance to, to do something about this. And so that was a bit more tepid of an endorsement of the idea than then you I might have seen no one's you know again none of these major papers have come out and said yes rent control forever it was like well cities and counties should decide which is you know a bit of a it's a, certainly a step in endorsement of the proposition but not necessarily a step in endorsement of rent control writ large so I don't put a ton of stock in the no. impact of uh-uh. especially now yeah, exactly. un- unfortunately yeah. of newspaper endorsements on the outcome of elections yeah. yeah there didn't seem to be any pattern between those those newspapers where that were from a city where rent control is actually in existence versus right. not in existence right, right? so Sacra- sacramento we do not have rent control here right. the b in favor in la there is rent control right uh, the la times also in favor right mm-hmm. uh san francisco there is rent control didn't like it chronicle did not like it yeah um, San Jose, same thing. Yeah. Um, so that that I found interesting. I also think like there is a slowly moving shift within uh, the people who work at newspapers towards younger people who are often renters. Your point on the emphasis being on local control yeah. and not so much on rent control. That's right. actually a perfect segue into uh, some of the advertisements that were also unveiled in the last week for the Yes on 10 campaign, um, and you will hear one right now. A movement of renters and homeowners is building across our state, taking on our housing crisis by voting Yes on 10. Endorsed by the League of Women Voters, California Democratic Party, California Teachers and Nurses, a broad coalition of labor and housing advocates, and the Los Angeles Times. Read Prop 10 yourself a simple measure empowering your local community to take on skyrocketing rent and predatory housing practices and vote yes on 10. Notably, um, two words or at least a phrase was not mentioned in either ad, that phrase being rent control. Hmm. Um, So you kind of get an insight into the tactics of the yes on 10 campaign, which is not so much saying rent control is great, rent control is great, rent control is great, uh, more, we need to protect tenants, 
and local control, local control. Uh, did you watch the No on 10 ads? Yeah, and uh, they just put out a Spanish language one too, which is interesting. Yeah, um, and so um, you know, um, I think they keep hammering that the uh, housing freeze and we could be doing other things and and need to build and all that sort of stuff is the message. Deeply flawed, badly written. That's Proposition Ten. It does the opposite of what it promises. Prop Ten will drive up rents, take rental housing off the market, and make it harder to find a place to live. And Prop 10 has no protection for renters, seniors, veterans, or the disabled, and no provisions to treat homelessness or build affordable housing. That's why veterans, seniors, and affordable housing experts say no on 10. It makes a bad problem worse. Which advertisements do you think were more effective in delivering their message? Uh... Why, don't, why are you shrugging off the question? I mean, I don't know, man. I, you know, I'm not. A, I don't know if I'm a great judge of this. Um, I, you know, I think I. I, I, I let me just say this: N- neither ad sort of surprised me. Okay, let's move on to uh, the main topic of the podcast. What are the housing packages working? How how should we assess it? Is it fair to assess it this early? Let's first start by recapping what was in the package, and for those that are incredibly wonky among you we went bill for bill each of the 15 bills in one of the early episodes of the podcast like really fleshing out the details of each of these bills so if you really really want to remind yourself of what was actually in it um i recommend you check out that podcast hopefully this brief recap will suffice so liam yeah in 30 seconds recap what was in the housing package we'll take three bills Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll start with Senate Bill Two. This was a, this is a new seventy five dollar fee um, on uh, mortgage refinances and other um, sort of real estate transactions, and that money uh, will go towards helping to finance the development of low income homes and a number of other things, um, all housing related. Second is Senate Bill Three. That was a uh, ultimately four billion dollar bond. You'll be voting on this as Proposition One on your ballot in November. Uh, Three billion of that goes to help to building the low income housing. A billion of that goes towards a home loans for veterans. The third bill, Senate Bill 35, this is legislation that sort of aims to streamline the approval process for projects that uh, uh, proposed that meet zoning requirements, uh, A, and B, comply with a host of other things with respect to reserving a certain percentage for uh, low income of the development yes. for low income residents, providing uh, uh, union level wages uh, for construction workers who are building the projects, a bunch of other things. But these were sort of the, seen as the three major bills in the package. Let's let's start with let's actually start with SB three. Yep, that's um, easy one. That's a very easy one. Yeah. Um. So it, as Liam mentioned, it'll be on the ballot this November. My uninformed prior is that there will be significant support for this. There is no organized opposition to this, which right. I think is noteworthy. Right. Um. You know, but I I would expect this to pass. Yeah. I mean, I think there's some. Uh. The only thing is, there's some question about bond fatigue. Right. This is a bond. Uh, there are multiple bonds on mm-hmm. the ballot, including one that's close to $9 billion for water. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a second housing bond um, for homeless housing. That's Proposition 2. two. Yeah. And so, you know, you might have a, a bit of a – and I'm sure – Not in lo- to mention local lo- lo- bonds. Exactly, yeah. There are going to be a bunch of uh, localities that are going to have their own low-income housing bonds. Yep. And so the, the one – bit of treachery, if you will, uh, for this, this these measures passing, uh, the state housing measures passing, is if there's a bit of bond fatigue. The affordable housing development community and those that advocate for the construction of more affordable housing, this was the biggest get by far. 
Yeah, um, it's a, obviously it's a bond, so it's not a, a, a constant source of money. No. Unlike SB two, we'll talk about that. But it is, you know, the initial four billion dollars. It's, I mean, that's got to be the biggest since uh, been at least seven years since yes. the end of redevelopment, right? Yes. Uh, and there was a, a housing bond that was passed. I believe the last one was oh six, and so quite some time uh, to have a fusion of cash like this coming from the state if it were to pass. Uh, so that is SB three. Now let's talk about SB two and where the where that stands. Yeah, so there's, you know, you can't, there, not a dollar has been given yet to a locality to help uh, them do anything um, with respect to, to housing. Uh, this is money that, that, that gets collected up into a pot. Uh, mm-hmm. That, you know, pot started, started to fill on January. And so there's been a lot of pot filling uh, over the last nine months. Uh, the State Housing Department has put out a, hey, you want some of this money? Come and get it. Request. Um, that's the technical term. Yes. Right? Uh, and so that has happened. Uh, and so we're at that's the stage we're at. With yes. Mm-hmm. And is is that slower or faster than how this typically works? My uh, understanding that this is how this typically works. This was a little slower than what they had originally intended, but not on order of magnitude slower. Yeah. yeah. A- and the funding that's actually coming in, this is an important part of this, too does look like it's going to meet what the revenue projections were. Which is $250 million a year. $250 million a year. And yeah. the key part of that is, obviously, that's significantly less than what's in the bond, but it's ongoing. It's this will ongoing be there every year, the first ongoing stream since redevelopment ended. Correct. Yeah. Once there's enough money in the pot to go out, yeah. where is that money initially going to be spent? So uh, the first year money uh, is different than the rest. The rest of the I'll start with the out years because that's easier. The out years are just going to be basically for low income development, help subsidize that. Yes. The first year though, there's the money split in half. First was money for to help with homelessness efforts lo- locally. That's one half. The other half is going to go to uh, localities to help them. Localities. That's, I should just say cities and counties. I'm sounding like a bureaucrat. So cities and counties to help them, uh, to, you know, update their community plans or blueprints for development. You know, in a way to help speed up the process, uh, if you will, um, or allow for uh, development in a way that, that that perhaps is not there now. And how, how necessary is that? Uh, I think I, I think as someone intellectually honest, um, particularly if, if you believe in the carrot, carrot and sticks approach to life um, and to getting housing built, um, providing money for cities to update uh, their blueprints for development is a good way to make cities happy when uh, particularly a lot of other uh, of these le- pieces of this legislation and proposals in the state legislature is to give cities and counties a stick and punish them for not approving housing. Uh, if you give them uh, money, that's a nice, typically a nice carrot. I think some of the takeaway from both SB2 and SB3 is this money is vitally important and inherently slow to get out. No money has gone to the construction of an affordable unit, right? Correct. I don't know if you can blame the state or at least the people who are in charge of doing this for that yet, even though it's been nine months since um, they started collecting this revenue. Well, yeah. Well, and just to go back, certainly not for the bond. If people no, haven't voted on it yet, course, then they can't. Course. Right. But I also think it keeps in mind, too, um, and we're, I'm sure we'll explore this, 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 this more. But with respect to the money, I mean, this money is not even close, not even close, not even I mean, not even a, a really a, a small drop in the bucket for what you uh, state sort of really needs. If we're going to talk about subsidizing housing for the neediest residents mm-hmm. So those were the two money bills. Now let's talk about SB 35, which, as Liam mentioned, uh, was billed by Senator Scott Weiner that would streamline the housing approval process um, for new developments, given that they meet uh, a handful of requirements. This is the sexiest one. 
um, mostly because, well, I I think it is. Yeah. Liam's looking at me like, is this sexy? And <laughs> anything that involves, anything that's going to result in people shouting at each other at um, city council meetings, sure, okay. that's the sexier part of housing policy. <laughs> Let's talk about SP35 writ large first. Yeah. How many projects have invoked SB 35? Sure. I think I think probably a handful. I mean, I, there could be less some than that, 10, less than 10, some that we've missed uh, potentially. Uh, but we do know uh, of um, uh, five in San Francisco that have tried to use this process. Uh, two uh, have already been approved. Yes. Um, one in the mission, uh, which is sort of the most high profile there. Uh, uh, which predominantly or, or historically Latino uh, area of the city. Uh, and then three more are in the pipeline in San Francisco to potentially be approved uh, by the staff. Uh, there's one um, in Marin County in San Anselmo. Um, there's uh, uh, two. Uh, there's another one in Berkeley, uh, but that one the city there has rejected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's unclear whether that's going to move forward. So, yeah. so explain to people why city officials are involved at all in this if the whole point of SB 35 – Yes. was to bypass elected officials and their influence on local housing decisions. Right. That's that, People might disagree with how I characterize that. But that's, but that's about right. That's about right. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so why, how could Berkeley object to this? So the rules are um, that these projects have to be compliant with zoning, compliant with all the other standards of affordability and all these other sorts of things. Uh, and there's a staff report that has to come out. I mean, who decides whether, you know, a developer can say, yes, we are in fact compliant, but someone has to say, all right, fine, yeah, sure, right? Yes. And so in Berkeley, the city staff, two times now, has said, great developer, I understand that you have this project you believe is compliant with the rules under SB 35, but ah, ah, you, my friend, are trying to build in a historic area that's something that's not allowed under SB 35, so therefore, vamos, uh, you are not allowed to use this. And that brings up the point where, well, if the developer really feels it, they their remedy in that circumstance is to go to court. Yes. And, uh, a, and have a that frequent out. remedy in, yes. in housing circles. Yes. Uh-huh. Um, the, so just to kind of flesh out what's happening yeah. in Berkeley. Right. Part of the controversy is there's a Native American tribe yes. who claims that the land that uh, the developer wants to build this uh, new apartment complex on, which would be 50% affordable, right. was their burial ground. Correct. The shell mound for those yes. familiar with uh, that part of the East Bay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the highest profile SB35 case. Zombie, a, zombie mall. Zombie mall. A yeah. zombie mall in yeah. the city of Cupertino. Yeah. So uh, big project um, being proposed in Cupertino, which is the home of Apple in Silicon Valley for a dozen years. This is the uh, old site of the Valco Mall. Uh, and uh, earlier this week, the city council in Cupertino um, ended up approving a version of this project uh, with the new leverage of SB 35 uh, certainly being a factor in that decision. This project was on the table for a dozen years, and now it appears to have headed to uh, certainly the furthest along by getting city council approval for a, you know, a plan that would that would allow it to be developed. Sure. So, so taking a step back here, yeah. um, the developer was trying to put a huge complex on this mall that would include 2,400, I think 2,400 units of housing, 2,200? Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately they got to 2,900, but Oh wow! Yeah, that's the that's that the city a... council plan. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the, the the developer was trying to put this huge complex on this mall that would include retail, would include office space, and would also include a significant amount of housing. Right. Um, they'd been trying to do that forever. Right. It wasn't going anywhere. Right. SP thirty five comes along, the developer says, "Hey, great! 
we're we're rolling with SB thirty five now, right. which put a clock on what the city, how the city could respond. Exactly. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Cupertino staff, the the planning staff, um, said yes, this project does conform with our zoning standards. Yep. So that obstacle was not an obstacle. Right. So what that meant was that the developer could just steamroll ahead with this right. if they wanted to. And uh, in response, Cupertino put forward a couple other plans, uh, including the one that was ultimately ultimately approved, that um, you know uh, includes a lot of benefits for the community, such as uh, brand new city hall, new city hall, nice, um, and a few other things that that they're going to get a big payment to the school district uh, if well, you know, they're going to get know, if the developer moves forward with that. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So the reality now is the developer has, and we're skipping ahead a little bit, but the developer has two choices: they can go ahead with what the city council approved, which is twenty nine hundred housing units. Um, um, half of which reserved for um, uh, low-income residents as a result of uh, sort of being part of the SB 35 process or discussion. And the second being the, the one with 2,400 that under the law had to have half uh, reserved for low-income residents as well. Let's let's talk about the affordability component here. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that in both the Berkeley project and this project, you know, developers complain a lot about inclusionary requirements right. and how it kills yeah. new development. Yeah. Here we're talking about very big projects yes. that have a fifty percent affordability requirement in there. Fifty percent. Right. Yes, it's it's a lot of affordable units within a project, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think it's notable that SP thirty five has at least chipped away a little bit at that argument that developers put out there about the onerous burden of an inclusionary requirement, because in these cases, the developers still think they're going to make a profit with that proportion of housing only slated for low and moderate income households. So I think you're right. Uh, but let me push a little bit on the the straight narrative of that. Sure. Um, I think, uh, one, you have a very limited number of sites where this thing would actually work to that extent. Um, yes. Uh, so Agreed. That's, that's number one. N- number two, um, one of the criticisms uh, of the this Valco project is that it has a, a lot more um, retail and office than, uh, than, 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 than housing in terms of uh, exacerbating sort of the jobs housing imbalance, which has sort of led us to the housing crisis that that we have in the state, and that's how they're making up for the and that's what the developer argue will say. Well, revenue. look, if yes. you're requiring us to set aside half of these units for low income folks, we need to pay for that in some way. We're doing that through this sort of large amount of office and retail that we're yes. going to be doing as part of the project, but. You know, this does work for the developer because they get the certainty that they can have that this project is going to move forward and not, you know, continue to be delayed and have that cost be something that that would not allow them to produce such a high level of, uh, of low income uh, units. Let's talk about how the residents of Cupertino reacted to SB 35. So this has been up for a dozen years for a reason. Uh, that's been there's a lot of community oppositions. A lot of folks said well, we want to still want a mall there or this is too dense or uh, projects too dense or, you know, even things that like actually we should be more housing than what's being put there. So variety of angles and attacks. Uh, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but but uh, there was something that was quite extraordinary, I think, that came out uh, during these two days of meetings, which was um, one group of residents put together a PowerPoint to show during the um, during the uh, debate to the city council to say, hey, here's how we feel about this this project. And so I'll just I'll just read it because it's something. And this again, I want our listeners to know this was like written on a PowerPoint delivered. Um According to the sales pitch, the new housing units would include low-income, high-density apartments, high-density housing apartments. This would mean that we would have uneducated people living in Cupertino. 
A lot of other residents and I are concerned that this would make the current residents of Cupertino uncomfortable and split our city in half. Yeah, I don't. I don't really know what you say to that. Yeah, I mean, it, we could be joking about this, but I, 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 on the one hand, um, I don't think this is something that people don't feel. I think this is actually something that people do feel, and so in some ways, having it out there publicly, I think, yes. actually gets out the fact that this exists yes. in many communities. On yeah. the other hand, um, it's to be very clear, an astonishingly ignorant thing to say. Um, and astonishingly ignorant to put it on a PowerPoint to basically say, hey, just in case you guys need to be sure this is it, we're going to tell you in writing uh, and then click to the next slide. And so uh, that's, that's, I think, it's another something about how Sure, and not to mention some of the racial undertones of that. Absolutely, absolutely. What's next? What's next with this? So it, uh, the developer gets to choose now. Yes. The city council approved not the SB35 compliant version of a pro- of this project, but a different one. Uh, the developer gets to say which one they would rather do. Um, and so, and I think that there's a lot of st- strategy involved potentially. I mean, certainly it seems like the SB35 version would be less vulnerable to litigation um, because of all the reasons that we talked about before. However, the former one has now been approved by the city council, which they could say is a mark of the city saying, this is the preferred project. We'd prefer to work with you on that. And so all sorts of calculations that that, that we'll see over the next few weeks, I think, to decide what the developer is going to ultimately do. Yes. And I would expect litigation in one way or another. Probably. And, and that litigation will be crucial, I think, to the future of SB 35. I, I agree. If the litigation, if they choose, for instance, the SB 35 project and residents in the city sue and say, you should not have granted that uh, approval authority to this developer for that, um, that's a, that, you know, that will be a very crucial thing in terms of how cities then in the future look at um, applications under this law. Let's take a step back. Yeah. Did SB 35 work as intended in this particular instance in Cupertino? Well, uh, going by the reaction of the author, Scott Weiner, um, yes, he was sort of supportive of of uh, of uh, of what was happening in Cupertino. Yeah, I think you know uh, he I, he obviously has an incentive to say that it's working. Yeah, out. yeah. I mean, I think like it's really hard because um, and I again, I've said earlier in the cod, on the on, on the on the podcast, it's very hard for me to say on a particular project that like this was good or bad, yes. or this was intended or not, or all these yes. sorts of things. But I, I do think in in the broad scheme of things, let me just try to answer your question this way. In the broad scheme of things, the idea that a, a big housing project that included a lot of a lot of low income units was uh, pretty unquestionably unstuck by the fact that SB 35 was around. Yes. I think those folks c- could call that a victory uh, for their process. That being said, um, I don't think in an ideal world, supporters of SB 35 would be happy with a project that was approved that exacerbated the jobs housing imbalance that exists in particularly in the Bay Area. Exactly. And so um, that I would certainly argue was unintended uh, as a result of, of, you know, of, of that was not the kind of project they had in mind when that when that issue was passed. Right? Yes. And so um, I think you can look at it that way. That's probably that's the best way. The best way I'm going to be able to answer your question. Yeah, I, yeah. I think unquestionably SB 35 granted leverage to the developer in this situation that yeah. was crucial to a shovel eventually touching dirt. I, I think that part you can't debate, yes. right? Like, well, and we, although we haven't gotten to the shovel touching the no, dirt, no, we yet, haven't. But, we but haven't yes. gotten to it yet. But it did but unstick it. So yes, definitely. Yeah. Without SP thirty five, this this does not move as fast as it as it Correct. does. Yeah. Um. And, and yeah, I think you're exactly right. I think it, if it turns out that um, more people end up moving to Cupertino 
to and there work in Cupertino, them, right? then there are housing for them. That is a setback to SB 35. And there were there are some safeguards in SB 35 that are supposed to guard against that. Yeah, in terms of this amount of square footage. Exactly. Dedicated to residential versus retail. But, hey, here, here we are with an actual project, and here we are. All right. And with that, let's talk to our guests. We're here with uh, Mayor Darcy Paul, the mayor of Cupertino, California, uh, who had a big couple of days the last few days. Uh, mayor Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Great to be here. Thanks. So uh, first question for you, you had nine hours of meetings, correct me if I'm wrong, nine hours of meetings on Tuesday on this project and another five on Wednesday. So how, uh, how tired are you? Uh, you know, I'm doing okay, actually. Uh, I think after you know almost four years of this, I've kind of gotten the processes adjusted, and with regard to you know making sure that um, you know, I'm rested up for the meetings, yeah, I've done that. You know, it's kind of like any other you know erratic schedule. You you get used to it and make adjustments after a while. So I'm doing all right today. Thanks. We were joking earlier, but you sound great and in a good <laughs> mood. And neither Liam nor myself would would be as kind of rosy as you are right now. <laughs> oh no, well you know I, I guess. Um, I, I, I guess what it is is that uh, a lot of it has been uh, a build up to you know getting some kind of resolution, and mainly I'm I'm happy that we had the discussion that we did. Uh, we, we had a lot of various perspectives and viewpoints represented, yes, uh, and, and I thought that they were represented quite well. Yeah. So let's start way way back. Uh, tell me the history of the the Valco Mall in Cupertino. So the Valco Mall, I believe, was. Uh, was opened around 1978, and uh, for a while in the South Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area, it was the mall to go to. Um, but then uh, we ended up having uh, various uh, sources of competition. Um, uh, I think a lot of the uh, focus became um, centered upon trying to redevelop the mall as, as something else, you know, most specifically a mixed-use project. So over the same period of time, what what was happening to Cupertino's housing market? Well, it's it's interesting. The Cupertino housing market really hasn't uh, exploded in the way that it has until just the last few years, um, maybe the last four or five years. It, it was it was pretty expensive up to that point. Uh, the median price was probably hovering around nine hundred, nine hundred thousand uh, for a number of years. Uh, it. People like to say it stayed stable through the recession, but the fact of the matter is um, the, the the market did deflate a bit. Um, but after things started recovering, um, you know, Apple opened its new campus. Um, I, I think the fundamentals of our rebuild in the economy, uh, especially locally, were very sound. Um, our school systems are good. Uh, they attract people from, you know, all around the world, really, and... Uh, we we saw an increase in the home values. Um, the the home values in the last four or five years, I mean, they've increased quite a bit. They've in, in increased precipitously, in fact, and uh, it is it, it's truly unsustainable. So wh- 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 why don't we go directly to Valco now? Um, ha- that's a project that's been sort of pitched uh, as a housing development or mixed use project for a very long time, right? Um, I, it's been pitched as a mixed-use project for, I'd say, at least about a dozen, maybe 15 years at this point. So um, 
that's a long time. <laughs> um, how did the passage of Senate Bill 35, which is uh, sort of an effort to uh, streamline uh, app- approvals for um, projects that are sort of zoning compliant, um, subject to a number of factors, but how did the introduction and passage of that change the discussion about the Valco project at Cupertino? Well, I'd say the SB 35, um, the SB 35 requirement is not is not a bad one in and of itself with regard to making sure that we're um, trying to increase the amount of housing stock. As applies in, as applied in Cupertino, with regard to the office space, uh, I, I think that we made some missteps in terms of our you know, relative, not just bargaining position, but in terms of our, our good planning position. And what I mean by that is that essentially SB 35 states that uh, you can go ahead and bypass your local jurisdictional approvals and go through what they describe as a ministerial approval process, which is really just your local jurisdiction staff. You don't go through the electeds, you right. go through the staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they essentially say that it can go to staff review, and as long as your ratio of square footage of residential to square footage of non-residential is two to one, um, which is to say two-thirds residential, um, then you'll um, be able to pass a threshold for getting through to um, an automatic entitlement. Um, but the hook is that uh, if you're most jurisdictions in California, uh, you need to deliver half of those units of housing as affordable below-market-rate housing units. Right. And so um, for us, what that means is that um, the developer was able to take uh, the limited number of objective factors uh, in the Valco site. There were no height uh, restrictions. There were no setback restrictions. Uh, there was a requirement for at least 600,000 square feet of retail. And there was um, a um, um, there, there was the ability to ask for uh, up to 2 million square feet of office. And so that ability to ask for up to 2 million square feet of office is something that we should have, uh, we should have regulated, frankly, because 2 million square feet of office, if you're assuming um, from a very generous perspective, uh, 250 square feet um, of office space per worker, mm-hmm. uh, that, that translates to 8,000 employees. That's mm-hmm. 8,000 workers, and in a 1.5 to 1 or 3 to 2 jobs to housing ratio. So you're, you're concerned that, that, that basically there's too many jobs being created by this project and not enough, not enough houses. That's exactly where I'm going with right, this, yes. Right. And so we're talking about something on the order of 56 to 5,700 uh, homes we would need, but SB 35 itself only delivers 2,400 homes. Mm-hmm. And so we're left with a deficit of something on the order of, of several thousand homes. And this is a state law that was invoked in order to try to help correct the housing crisis. But in fact, as applied in Cupertino, it is, it is exacerbating our housing uh, imbalance. You know, we understand that there is a housing stock issue. Uh, we understand there are affordability issues. Now let us do our jobs and go ahead and apply what we know about our jurisdictions. I think, I think the flip side of that, um, Mayor Paul, is that a lot of people will argue, well, that mall hasn't been touched for a long time, right, uh, before SB 35. And meanwhile, as you mentioned, the housing affordability situation in Cupertino 
um, has has worsened, right? So were were you guys doing your jobs um, over that dozen years? Dozen years where that mall just kind of sat there, remaining dormant. I would say yes. The developers were holding on to their entitlements, but they weren't building for various reasons. Um, so our, those those allocations were made in good faith, um, and and it is it is true that in the past some jurisdictions have kind of gamed the system, so to speak, to basically say, well, we're going to you know give allocations and entitlements to various places where we know that the developments won't occur. That did not happen here. We we made those allocations in good faith, but because of the fact that there are certain aspects of our economy that are so attractive, um, there has been a bit of uh, hand-sitting with regard to uh, kind of a wait-and-see attitude. So um, with regard to the Valco Mall, is there a contingent that looks at the mall, grew up with it since the 70s, and, and goes, hey, you know, we would really like our mall back? Uh, yes, there is that contingent. However, I, I do strongly believe at this point the majority of the community understands that there are economic considerations here uh, where um, you know, we, we do need to balance it out with regard to uh, the needs such as affordable housing. Well, what, uh, what about that affordable housing component, right? Because one of the reasons SB 35 could be invoked in, in this case was because, yes, you may be um, meeting your overall production numbers, but you're not meeting your affordable housing production numbers. So housing that's geared to uh, some of the low-income workers that you, you previously mentioned. Yeah, I, I know, I, and I agree that the affordable housing numbers are important to meet. Uh, it's, it's something where um, had we been um, acting as a truly you know, bad actor, so to speak, you know, in the spectrum, we would have been placed in a bucket uh, under SB 35 where the developers only required to deliver 10% affordable housing. So I, I want to ask you about, this is, uh, as we mentioned at the top, a very long um, set of meetings over the past couple of days, and you bring talking a lot about sort of the need for more low-income housing in Cupertino. Um, there was also a perspective that was raised um, during this meeting, and this was a quote from a, a PowerPoint that some residents um, delivered during the meeting. I'll just read from it to then get your reaction. The, the lines said, according to the sales pitch, the new housing units uh, would include low-income, high-density housing apartments. This would mean that we would have uneducated people living in Cupertino. A lot of other residents and I are concerned that this would make the current residents of Cupertino uncomfortable and would split our city in half. How, how did you react to that, or how, what are your thoughts on that when you, when you saw it, and, and now that you've had some time to reflect yeah, on it? Yeah, that. no, thanks for that, for that question. I've been getting a number of Most of my questions are actually you know, with regard to that. Um, and I'll, I'll be completely candid uh, about what I've seen uh, and what my perspective is. I don't think that it reflects the majority sentiment of Cupertino. Um, in the last year, where we've been talking about this particular site quite a bit, uh, and we've had a lot of community outreach sessions, I've had exactly one candid community comment um, where the resident said to me something along the lines of what you read uh, on, the, on the PowerPoint here. This is actually a 14-year-old student, uh, and I know this because his mother came to me during the break and asked me whether he could speak uh, earlier, and I looked through the comment cards and realized that he was fourth or fifth. And so this is my take on it. I think that most people realize that this is, if you have that sentiment, it's not good. <laughs> it's not nice to share it. But 
I also think that it is not reflective of the majority of our community. Is the sentiment out there? Yes, apparently it is. I don't think that it is um, something that is prevalent uh, in our city, our units. Um, how much leverage did SB 35 grant the developer in this situation? It seems like it completely changed the equation here. Yeah, I, I, I would say in the broader sense, uh, jurisdictions should make sure that their um, that their cities have objective factors uh, that that govern um, their uh, uh, their geography. And if they don't, then they should expect those. Um, very attra- attractive lack of object- objective factors, or you're, the very you're fa- attractive. You're killing me here, Mayor Paul. What, what, <laughs> what's the what? What do you mean by objective factors? So in SB 35, um, they state that as long as you're adhering to uh, what the objective factors mm-hmm. are for a particular development or parcel, mm-hmm. um, you can go ahead and invoke the uh, the, the, the requirements yeah. of SB 35. And so if you don't actually have things like heights or setbacks and you've placed things like in the Valco example, a, a, a 2 million square foot provisional office allocation, then that exposes your city to um, opportunism uh, with respect to you know, using this and twisting it into something that's really more of a profit center yeah. than a delivery mechanism for helping uh, improve the housing crisis. I see. Mm-hmm. So would, yeah. w- would your advice to, let's say, other mayors in cities – that um, might be facing a similar situation with an SB 35 project, would that be to make sure that you're definitely on top of how um, every parcel of available land or land that's going to be redeveloped is zoned? Yeah, absolutely. And, and it does tend to be kind of a, a localized problem for us as well because not, not every uh, jurisdiction is in uh, the same, I guess, economic um, position where we can be looking at um, the jobs housing ratio. Uh, and I, I think a lot of jurisdictions would say, well, you know, why, why are you looking uh, to, to turn away jobs? What do you think Sandhill does? Do you think they go with their own SB 35 uh, proposal, or do you think they go with the, what the city council came up with, which, which you voted against? Um, I, you know, I think as it stands right now, um, based on what we know, it looks like a more attractive financial proposition for them to go with their um, their specific uh, plan approvals. So that's the city council approved, the one the city council actually approved. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Uh-huh. So from a financial perspective, from a systemic perspective, I mean, they have they have fewer procedural obstacles under an right. SB 35 project. Right. Yeah. Predominantly lawsuits, correct? The threat of lawsuits? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, referenda, you know, right. that, that kind of thing. Right, 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 right. right. Do, do, you, do you expect a, a lawsuit? Um, you know, I... I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, you know, lawsuits are pretty easy to file. I mean, just relatively speaking, uh, I, I'd, be, I'd be surprised if nothing was filed. But, um, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with outreach and, and good faith and, and, you know, in terms of trying to, um, you know, if, if the um, effort to reach out to the community is sincere, then, you know, I think it'll be met with a reasonable response. Mayor Paul, uh, thank you so much for your time. And we also want to, if you run into Apple, uh, please tell Apple on our behalf to, to thank you for, or thank, you know, thank Apple for our, our very high uh, iTunes ratings for the podcast. Okay, so please excellent. Make sure we'll to do. do that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. All Mayor right. Paul. Thanks. Thanks, Liam. Thanks, Matt. We're here with Ben Metcalf. 
head of the state housing and community development department and the man in charge of implementing a lot of last year's state housing package. Thanks for coming on the podcast again, Ben. Hey, good morning, Matt. Good morning, Liam. Happy to be here once again. Yes. yes. First first time repeat guest. First how repeat how guest. does that feel? It feels great. I think you really have made it when you get somebody on the second time uh, from the state housing department. It's clearly a great <laughs> marker of success for the <laughs> state's housing podcast. I'm <laughs> sensing a little bit of irony there. <laughs> um, let's, let's just start real broadly, Ben. Is this working? Uh, is what working? So the, the what here, the state housing package, right? So we got together last summer, passed a package of 15 bills, signed into law last September. And uh, I, I think it's important, before I answer that question, just to sort of remind folks uh, that those 15 bills came together really out of the work, I'll give my department a little bit of credit, out of the work we had done laying out the notion that we had to have a comprehensive solution, that there was no silver bullet, um, and that if we really wanted to be responsive to the housing crisis, we had to try and tackle in a, a bunch of different pieces of the things that were sort of the root causes of driving up uh, cost. So the first disclaimer would be, uh, absolutely, uh, yes, it's working, but can you go find that house that the housing package built and go kick the tires You know, today? Maybe not, because I think what we did with that package were a lot of things that put in motion changes that will be hopefully lasting and durable and shift the way things happen, but over a period of years, if not decades. So you just undercut my question, which was tell me a house is- Where's the house? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you probably weren't aware that that was coming. Uh, but you know, uh, what does it say though? And and I, I I'm a little being a little bit glib about this, but like, what does it say that you know this is something that was billed as that the state taking unprecedented action to sort of fix the, the housing problems? Um, yet uh, this stuff takes a while to actually do anything, right? I mean, how do you manage expectations for something like this? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and I think part of it is, you know, folks need to understand that. You know, the hole that California found itself in from a affordability uh, perspective didn't emerge overnight. It's literally been decades in the making. And, you know, we, we did uh, track very carefully every year the number of permits issued relative to what our expectations should have been and the state hands down goals for what we would have liked to have seen built. And I, I think I have to keep coming back to folks and reminding them, you know, for the better part of 20 plus years, we have been building fewer than half of the homes that the state minimally said we needed just to sort of tread water on keeping um, prices stable. So we've seen an uptick over the last few years, but it's part of a multi-decade trajectory going in the wrong direction. So what what is the appropriate metric to judge whether this is working or not? So you just mentioned uh, building permits, right? Is that what we should be looking at? Or should we be looking at price? What, what are you looking at to say, yeah, th this law is working as intended, or this law isn't? Great question. I think we have to look at a, a, a few different things. I, I do think per permit issuance is important. There's that is not something. just one, because that would make my life easier. <laughs> we, we tend towards the permits. Yeah. The, the other one that we spend at uh, HCD spend a lot of time looking at is a metric. Uh, it's a little wonky, but bear with me. It's the, you know, there's a housing podcast. Um, HUD has a metric that they uh, uh, make available called uh, the you know, like the incidence of worst case housing needs, which is a mouthful. But what it basically translates into is how many low income families do you have that are paying more than half their income every month in housing costs and not today 
you know, getting a nickel of public assistance from mm-hmm. anybody. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's a big nut that we're, we're you know, we have to crack that nut because the, those are the folks that are really like one paycheck away from falling into homelessness. They are, um, you know, there are a lot of collateral consequences to their kids in terms of lack of st- residential stability. Um, the, you know, the social cost down the, down the line from those folks that, you know, I don't think are, are healthy for this for this state. So how's that going? How are you tracking that metric over the past year? How's things? Yeah, well, area? again, to, back to the point, we haven't actually seen the, you know, the, I can't point to, the, to a house that the housing package yeah. has built. Yeah. I think what I can point you to is more, um, uh, a lot of momentum on a lot of different fronts that I think are suggestive of the fact that when we look forward a few years, those, those are the kinds of numbers that we'll begin to see progress on. Um, so give me a front in which there's momentum. Sure. No, let me. I, I can. I, I will take the bait. Yeah. I, I can give you some examples. Yeah. Um, so let me let me let me throw uh, just one out to start with, um, and that would be uh, you know I, I we were down. Uh, I was down with the San Diego regional government um, earlier this year, um, as HDD was teeing up to give them their new set of targets for what they need to be building over the next eight years. And two things happened in that process that I think were really significant. One was that because of changes to state law um, that now authorize us to include overcrowding as a factor, the number that the state was able to hand down to the region was markedly higher. Number what, for housing goal, housing production. Exactly. So what they need to plan for. Right. So we're basically now saying to the region, hey, you need to step up and make sure that collectively all of your communities are zoning for a, a more housing. You're creating a larger zoning envelope that will allow potentially, right, for more housing to get built over the next eight years. That's significant. Second of all, for the one of the first times that anybody on my team can remember, uh, Sandag, the regional government, ultimately uh, didn't fight it. They said, you know, uh, we see what's coming, and we know that we need, as a region, need to step up, and we're not, and we're gonna, going to accept this sort of state requirement. I think that that response is indicative of the fact that for many folks in California, they sort of see that there's this political pressure, this political dynamic. They're recognizing they need to step up. That's not exclusively attributable to the package, right. but I think the conversation we had in Sacramento last year. Right, helping really problematize this at the local level, and folks at the local level are thinking like, "Hey, I either got to do this or I got to do something else." What What is an appropriate time frame to evaluate whether this is working or not? So the reason I was pushing back a little bit is I do think, despite the fact that we're doing this podcast, which I push for heavily, right. um, and I think is definitely worth checking up on. I think nine months um, is a little premature for some from aspects of this, but but what is an appropriate time frame? Five years, two years. 10 years when when can you say like yeah this didn't work or this 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 worked i i I will i will say we should be holding ourselves accountable even one year out to being able to show some progress i just think that the things that we're gonna you know i can point you to here are gonna be you know not yet people living in homes but i can certainly say you know we now know there are uh you know for example uh senate bill 35 right that was one of the big heralded components of the of the streamlining, uh, the streamlining legislation within the package that would have basically allowed developers to move forward with um, projects if those projects conform to zoning and if the cities were behind on their goals. Um, you know, as of today, you know, there's a cleanup bill that's going to fix some loopholes that's on the governor's desk. He hasn't signed it yet. Um, 
My department was tasked with uh, putting out implementing regulations that will clarify. So, like, there are really significant things that haven't happened yet that are necessary for implementing uh, that bill. But, like, I I can still go back and say, hey, we already have projects that are just going ahead anyways and trying to make this work. And, in fact, we already have projects that have even gone into the Senate Bill 35. We have one in San Anselmo and two, I believe, in San Francisco that have now actually been approved. Mm -hmm. Like, they've actually submitted the SB 35 paperwork. And uh, planners have looked at it, and in a ministerial fashion, in a time-expeditious way, they have given their approvals. So that means in real life, we have developers who are now you know, preparing to start construction, wherefore, wherefore they wouldn't have been able to otherwise. That's tangible, I think. Um, the next governor, uh, as well, the current governor um, is leaving at the end of this year. Uh, yeah. The next governor has, um, no matter who it's going to be, has put out extremely ambitious goals for new housing production in the state. Yeah. Uh, one candidate, 300,000 units a year. Another candidate, uh, 500,000 units a year. And this is, for context, we've been doing, and you'll have the numbers probably committed to mind more than me, but roughly 100,000 has been kind of the n- number that we've been talking with over, over the past few years. So um, is that... To triple that number, at the least, is that something that's possible in California? Well, it is possible, and I think if you, and in fact, I think um, you know, historically in California, when we were a state that was much smaller than we were today, I think in the um, early '60s, perhaps, I think we've been able to hit north of 300, 330,000 units. One time, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, like, there is historical precedent at a moment when our state was much less populous. Uh, to get an, in terms of new starts, you know, per unit per capita, like we can do it. But you're right, like we're not on that trajectory right now. And I wouldn't begin to purport that even once the housing package is fully implemented, that that alone would be enough to get us to those targets. I absolutely think that more will be needed. Like, like what? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think you know, it's, this is a good question for the ne- the next governor. I mean, I think we're going to have to do a little bit of a hey, if we want to try and get these numbers, what are the other levers that are out there that we can pull? What are the things we, you know? There are places in the that we did not tackle in the package at all. We really didn't get, for example, the cost. And um, until we think about how we control some of the underlying costs of residential construction, I'm hard pressed to see how we get that number. I mean, we're building. Out of per square foot costs, maybe twice what it's costing to build a single family home in, you know, suburban Texas, right? How do you reconcile that? Um, I think we need to do some work there. Um, so what what would that mean? What are those yeah. specific levers yeah. on on costs? Um, well, one, one we thing know that you know, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so so first of all, it's hard. Um, at the signing ceremony for the implementation package in San Francisco last September, the governor, you know, exactly nailed it. He said, you know, the challenge in housing is that we load on to housing um, a lot of things that help achieve other public goods. And uh, the challenge, he said something like, you know, too many goods can sometimes add up to being a bad. <laughs> and so when you look at housing, where we're trying to protect health and safety on seismic issues, where we're trying to achieve state climate change goals, where we're uh, you know, we want to make sure our workers are well. All these things sort of are good, but yeah. collectively they have a, um, a, a negative consequence, which is fewer houses than pencil out to get built. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing we are doing, which I think will be helpful, is we are working to come up with recommendations that we'll br- bring back to the legislature on impact fees. So one of the painful things is not only do we layer up the you know, residential building code, um, on top of already high labor costs and high construction costs, but then we also, at a local level, impose um, fees to address other costs that the city incurs when those homes get built. So there may be an impact fee to 
cover costs for transportation. There may be an impact fee to cover school fees. There may be an impact fee to cover infrastructure that needs to come in. One of the critiques there has been, well, it can be a little, per- actually, there can be impact fees to pay for more affordable housing, right? right? One of the things that folks have said is a little perverse is, well, you know, does it really make sense to have sort of the, the, the new guys who move in sort of shouldering the costs that really arguably maybe are attributable to the community as a whole? Now, cities will come back and say, hey, under Prop 13, what else can I do? Right. But I think we intend to really try and problematize that issue by talking about the incredible spread of impact fees that we see from, you know, some jurisdictions where it may just be close. I think Irvine is 170,000 bucks per unit just to to build, right? Right. Another place in California that maybe are down at 10 or 20,000. So we need to figure out how to make that work a little bit better. So that's one area we are focused on. What what, what sort of interaction do you have with... uh Ben Carson and HUD on these issues. You might have heard that he's a YIMBY now, so I'm just curious whether he's talked to you about some things that uh, might be done to uh, implement his vision of the future in, in California. I have not personally talked to Secretary Carson about his uh, new YIMBY status, um, uh, but I think that's positive in the sense that I think HUD um, can help lead in the space of pushing local and state governments to be more thoughtful about the regulatory barriers they have in place. That work is not actually new. It was really kicked off, I think, under the, the last Republican president uh, in the in the aughts under um, Secretary Martinez, I believe. HUD did a big push around just cataloging ways that states were doing local barriers. Yeah. California has actually been profiled in, uh, by HUD in their... Um, uh, effort, you know, in our efforts to do some of this stuff. So, look, if there's an opportunity where they can be helpful, that's great. But at the end of the day, I don't know. You know, local control is a local local matter. It's very hard for the feds to come in and tell cities to stop zoning uh, zoning practices. So, um, the state housing package put a lot of work on your plate and your department's plate, right? You guys yeah. were uh, charged with implementing a, a lot of this. Do you have the staff that you need to? do the work that the housing package has asked you to do? Um, so yes and no. I think we have a really good team in place right now that's pushing hard on a bunch of fronts. I feel really fortunate with the folks at HCD. It's a sharp bunch of really talented, committed individuals. Um, but there's a lot more hiring that we're going to need to do to really be able to fully realize the vision. In the weird way that how's like legislative changes in the state work uh we only got the authority to begin doing that hiring in july right right um so we've been a little bit delayed so the the, we signed it last september the laws didn't go into effect until january we only got authority to start hiring in july back to the question about why does it take a little yeah it's sometimes a little slow to get out of the gate that's that's part of it um, but we need uh, good talent. And to all the listeners out there, the podcast who <laughs> want to come join the team, uh, we are hiring. And actually, I encourage you guys to check out our website and see what's, uh, what the opportunities are, um, particularly uh, this fall, assuming Props 1 and 2 do pass. Uh, that will be a significant workload increase for us in terms of just processing uh, a lot of the affordable housing work. Uh, so that'll be a big push for us on the staffing front. So you're talking about the future, and I'm wondering um, what your future is going to be um, with the new administration coming in. Do you would this a job you'd like to keep? Uh, yeah, I, I I haven't look. I haven't had any conversations with any prospective candidates for governor at this point. It's still a little bit early for that. Um, 
Uh, but uh, I, I love the work. I mean, I'm really fired up about um, what we're doing with the package. Um, I see a lot of potential for next year, too. So uh, I'd certainly be happy to uh, offer up my services to the next governor um, uh, if that would be helpful. And I'm very committed to making sure HCD has a smooth transition in, in any case, because we have to. Um, part of the package kind of invested you guys with the authority to refer cases of cities and counties not approving housing that they probably should approve to the attorney general's office. Has, has that happened at all yet? Uh, yes, it has. <laughs> In where? Uh, um, without the advice of my attorney, I cannot comment on that matter. <laughs> you can't text Becerra right now. <laughs> <laughs> Becerra is the attorney general. No, I, I, um, I think all I can say at this point is we are uh, absolutely taking full advantage of that authority. There are cities and counties in California that are not just you know making a misstep here or there with state housing law, but are um, in a severe and cons consistent manner violating state housing law. And, and that's really where our focus has been on and trying to identify uh, a couple places where we think the intervention of the state through the attorney's general's office could both correct that behavior. Um, and I, you know, I suppose also send a little bit of a message to the marketplace, which is, you know, we're going to bend over backwards to try and be helpful as a state in terms of technical assistance, in terms of working collaboratively to problem solve issues. If you're, if you're not compliant with your housing element, if you're violating state housing law, but I think the message coming out of last year's housing package was crystal clear. Like if at the end of the day, you don't get that message and you're still out there, um, intentionally making it uh, difficult to achieve um, state housing goals, then there will be some consequences. What, what hasn't worked? Is, is there any part of this where you're, you've, you've looked at it and you're like, this is not working out so far as it was intended to? Uh, I mean, I think there's course correction on many fronts. Uh, you know, I think the SB 35 cleanup bill was a perfect example of a few areas, the sort of technical stuff where folks were getting out there trying to make it happen and we had to fix it up. Um, and I think there are a couple of pieces of the package that are just by their nature going to move a little bit more slowly. We have, I don't know, a couple of bills in there that created uh, sustainability districts right, right. and had back-end funding. Right, right. Well, the funding isn't there, yeah. so jurisdictions are sort of scratching their heads and saying, well, you gave us this authority to create these you know, workforce districts, but you, you know, no mechanism was set up, um, at least in the near future, to pay for that. So those are some things where, like, yeah, we, maybe we could have done a little more thinking on that and figured out how to execute better. I don't think it suggests a fundamental flaw in the package there. I just think you know we're going to have to wait a little bit longer than I wish we otherwise did. Um, you got anything else? I don't. Uh, okay, so I want to talk real quickly about data and the data that um, yeah. cities and counties are sending to you. Um, could you talk about how that has changed in the wake of the housing package? Yeah, no, this is actually an exciting piece of the story here. I'm a big believer in you know, measuring your progress to be able to tell if you're succeeding. And one of the huge gaping blind spots that the state had for many years, uh, Liam, I see Liam smiling because he was in our office a couple of years back digging deep in this, is that we have many cities that simply weren't under state law, you're required to do an annual report to the state saying, well, how am I doing on delivering on my housing goals? And we had this just horrible situation where half of our cities and counties in California just weren't bothering. They literally weren't filing the paperwork, and we didn't have a lot of recourse on that. 
Uh, last year, that dynamic changed. And so uh, the message coming out of the package was actually pretty clear. Number one, if you're not filing your reports, uh, you're going to start start losing eligibility for a whole host of other funds that you as a city want to get, not just housing funds, right? but also some infrastructure planning money, some cap and trade funds. Uh, and then ultimately that there are consequences. And that if you not only are not filing, maybe maybe it's probably more than not filing your paperwork, but you know you risk decertification of your element, you ultimately risk having a transition. So all of that together, plus Senate Bill 35, um, has seen our numbers go way up. We have, I think, more than 100 jurisdictions that have come in out of the dark and are now giving us data. Um, even those that were giving us data are now really scrubbing that data, um, and we're working with them to scrub it. So our reporting rate is now up north of 70%, which is a huge increase, continuing to grow. We're getting more folks coming in. And it was roughly 50 before? Yeah. And uh, we've also done something really great. I encourage all the podcast listeners to go to our website. We now have a a really easy-to-use interactive mapping tool where you can scroll around the state of California, click on uh, your favorite jurisdiction, and up will pop a little box that'll give you, you know, current year permit data uh, relative to goals. And that kind of visibility is huge because I think it's part of what holds us accountable long term to being able to show if we're making progress. I think it also is helping advocates for the first time sort of have more ammunition to go to their own city councils and sort of say, hey, uh, you know, why is it that, you know, the three neighbors, uh, neighboring towns around us, you know, are doing double the permit rate? Uh, or doing double as well as we are on our goals, but we're falling behind. Maybe we need to rethink that density bonus ordinance. Maybe we need to, you know, overhaul our AD, whatever it is. But I think it gives ammo to folks on the ground, which I think is really exciting. So if you were king of the world um, and you had, you were in charge of picking a term, a way that just described the backyard housing. This isn't Casita again. Oh, God. Not, not, not this. <laughs> What uh, term would you use? Accessory dwelling unit is the preferred uh, why, usage though? of the state. Yeah. <laughs> right. But There's a reason we've had you on Is not Casita a more elegant, perhaps, California-esque term that would describe the thing in a way that's a bit less bureaucratic? I understand you're a bureaucrat, so maybe that's why you have the answer oh. you do. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, it's a little more fun here, no? I think it's a little perilous to ask the state housing director for a definitive decision on this. I think you were doing better in that gray area. Uh, look, I, I don't object to casita. I think it's a perfectly good term. I will say personally, when I think casita, I think one of those little backyard cottages. Yeah, and so that's, I, yeah, that's, that's not. But an ADU, accessory yeah. dwelling unit, okay, encompasses something bigger, right? ADUs encompass garage conversions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, taking off the master bedroom suite and mm-hmm. repositioning that as an ancillary preach, unit. Preach. <laughs> I'm an inclusive <laughs> ADU person here. I don't want anybody, you know, I want to have some moniker that makes people feel like I can't be a part of that movement. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. <laughs> Very eloquent. <laughs> All right. That, that's it. You got anything else, Liam? I don't. I'm just sad now. So. <laughs> um, thank you very much for joining us, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Sure. No, thanks for having us on for all the great work you guys do every, every fortnight. Thank you for listening to Give Me Shelter, the California housing crisis presented by Cal Matters. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at mlevinreports. Liam Dillon, LA Times. Uh, on Twitter, I am at, at Dylan Liam. Uh, thanks again for listening. We'll be back um, in a couple weeks.